0: Today on Between the Lines, part two of my conversation with my distinguished guests, Senators Trent Lott and Tom Daschle. Welcome, I'm Barry Kibrick, Republican Senator Trent Lott and Democrat Senator Tom Daschle. Both are former majority leaders of the Senate. In our first conversation about their book, Crisis Point, we explored the issues that led to our broken political system. Now in part two, we delve deep into what we and our government must do to fix it.
1: I'm a writer today because I was a reader when I was 11 years old,
2: and it was. You, it do, need need, you do not need to prove your state of happiness to anybody.
1: Most of these speeches were as much as a month in preparation. Characters, the heroes in this book, are seekers of truth, in and, and a story that, that involved a lot of corruption. You don't
2: get a chance to really talk about what's real, oh. and it's the first movie.
0: Senator Lott, Senator Daschle, thank you so much for continuing our conversation. As I discussed in the first part, we dealt with our problems. Now we're going to do with solutions. So I want to welcome you both back again to Between the Lines.
2: Thanks for having us back, Barry. Glad to be with you. This was fun.
0: All right. Now, let's go into some of the things we spoke about. We know a lot already of what we have to overcome. One of the things is, is that everyone does realize our politics are broken, that we realize this, and yet there is a tremendous difficulty in what seems to almost be a simple solution, but maybe not an easy one.
1: Well, I think that's right. I think the American people are wiser than we give them credit for sometimes. They understand that uh, these issues are, are are ones that are not easily solved, even though there are, there are a lot of things that we can do that uh, that really just require good leadership more than almost anything else. Leadership that brings us together. Leadership that causes us to be inspired. Leadership that recognizes the importance of good common ground and compromise. That's what the American people are looking for. They find that in their own lives, and they certainly find that in the way they look at good governance.
2: A lot of what we recommend is not revolutionary. It's pretty sensible, commonsensical, if you will, like, we think that Congress uh, should uh, work five days a week. Most Americans work five days a week. Uh, In Washington, that's where the job is. It's not back home. You're in Washington as a legislator. You can't do it part-time. Five days a week, three weeks a month. The fourth week, go home to your district, your state, work the district. We think they should bring their families so that they're not always frustrated and worried about their families and not enjoying each other's company and getting to know each other. Now they don't really even know each other. And therefore, quite often, it's easier to dislike them. So that's the kind of thing that we're talking about, uh, that we believe would change the whole uh, atmosphere in the Congress.
0: You also said even the fact that the Senate is not on the same schedule as the House. So you don't even get to converse with your other co-patriots in your own party that are representatives. You only get to if on that sure. one day, be in yeah. the
2: Senate. Yeah. And, and for the last couple of years, the House of Representatives has been in two weeks and out two weeks. I mean, that's half time, less than part-time. This year, they're going to be in session like 110 days or less because of snow. Uh, you can't do what needs to be done in terms of the legislative process, sending a bill to a subcommittee, having a hearing, having an investigation of what's happening or not happening, having amendments having debate. The Senate is a great deliberative body, but do they really debate anymore? No. Do they hold the floor, as Tom advocates, when there's a so-called filibuster and actually do a filibuster? Those are the kind of things that take time, and it wouldn't be that hard to go back to that.
1: Many of the challenges we face, Barry, are not just Republican, Democratic, Mm -hmm. or conservative, liberal. They're House Senate. They're White House Congress. I mean, the kind of communication that is so critical among the institutional uh, leadership is just not there today. We need much more of that. It isn't just a philosophical debate. It's an institutional challenge that we just haven't owned up to. But gentlemen, you
0: start a chapter with a quote from Aristotle. Courage is the first of human virtues because it makes all others possible. Mm. And Right now, as you indicate in Crisis Point, courage is almost considered a disability. It's considered a, a, almost like you're, you're, you're disloyal if you have the courage to even propose some of these things. So that goes back to the leadership question amongst everyone. The president, the leaders in both houses, and the leaders within the American people, we must have the courage to demand these simple changes, even if they're not physically easy.
1: Our finest moments in history have been those moments when leaders have stepped up to the plate and shown real courage. We've written books about courage. We've written uh, about uh, the, the best leaders, and it was always clear they had the courage to do the right thing. We need that again today. And
0: you both are very clear we need them also to stop we mentioned in the first segment i brought up that silo effect where we're we're all stuck in our leaders are in that same silo sometimes so they're only listening to their own constituents their own advisors so it's 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 that kind of 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 leadership that we need where people are willing to step outside of their little cliques and really get down to business.
1: You know, the president needs to talk to Congress. The Congress needs to talk to the president. Congressional leaders need to talk to each other. That doesn't happen when you're flying all over the country, raising money and keeping the schedules that a lot of them do today. Uh, What would be wrong with the president inviting the leadership up to Camp David uh, prior to the State of the Union to say, look, let's come up with a list of things that we can do together this coming year. It doesn't have to be the only list, but let's come up with a good, solid list of things and then use the State of the Union to announce to the country, this is what we've agreed to work on as the beginning. This is what we're going to do together this year. Can you imagine what the American people would say if if that were the kind of thing we would be doing? They yearn for that kind of leadership, that kind of cooperation.
2: (laughs) Oh, go ahead, Sandra. Well, I'm just going to say quickly uh, you know, one of the simple suggestions we have in the book is that the Republicans and the Democrats, House and Senate, occasionally meet together and discuss an issue. On several occasions when we were facing difficult uh, decisions or a crisis, we would meet in the old Senate chamber, close the door, and just get in there and talk amongst ourselves. The atmosphere was so different. And when, usually we'd come out with a solution.
1: Well, that's exactly right. We don't see the kinds of joint caucuses. It's amazing when you bring everybody together. You know, for some reason, Trent says this so well. You know, once you've broken bread with uh, with somebody across the table, it's pretty hard to go down to the floor and call them a liar the next day. But we don't see the opportunities. Caucuses today become pep rallies where you rev up the team and you go out and charge and you're going to beat the other side. Well, that competition is good to a point. But there comes a time when you've got to bring people together and say, okay, we've already had our say. What are we going to do to solve this problem and move this country forward? That's what joint events can do. They can create the environment for that to happen.
0: Well, you say that politics at its heart is chemistry. And chemistry is that X factor that turns this body of disparate voices into a community, which is, again, why I guess you you want to stay all in Washington a little bit so that you can break bread, you can have a drink, you can do certain things as that, because if you don't have that chemistry bonding you as at least congressional leaders, if not at least as Americans, then you really are lacking that ability to get down to the nitty-gritty to solve the problems without it being a burden on so much of what you have to think about in regards to your brand, your ideology, your constituency, but what again is best for the country.
2: Well, and we, we give examples in the book, uh, you know, uh, good relationships, good chemistry leads to respect and trust and uh, cooperation. I remember one time uh, we had a uh, late session and at night, uh, early evening, and Tom had a, a small bill that was very important to him and his state of South Dakota, and uh, our friend John McCain put a hold on it and went to the airport and left town. Uh, I kept the Senate in session until he landed in Phoenix, Arizona, got him on the phone and said, hey, John, you put a hold on this bill. Are you aware that this is what it does and this is the Democratic leader's bill that's important for his state? We can't we can't do that. We can't just block it with one senator. And he said, you're right, Okay. He withdrew the whole. The we discussed it, it passed that night. That kind of relationship makes a huge difference in dealing with the bigger issues for the country and the world.
0: Well, you know though, this is the part that I'm most concerned with. As I said in the first segment, and we'll go back to the great uh, President Lincoln where at, this is a government of the people, by the people, for the people, and yet the people right now feel that we are not a part of this government. And you say in the book that true leaders know that people need a sense of ownership, a reason to be invested in the outcome. And right now we're at that critical point, that crisis point where we're not feeling that. I know even, when I correspond with my House of Representatives, with my senators, I'm getting a form letter. I'm, ge- I'm not feeling like I'm part of the system. That's more dangerous than any terrorist act we have to worry about.
1: No, you're absolutely right. We've got to build trust and faith in governance because without that, you can't, con- you can't really expect this democratic republic to flourish. The whole notion of a democratic republic is that we reflect the views and the concerns, the anxieties, the hopes and aspirations of our people. That's got to be articulated on the Senate and House floor, among the leaders. It's got to be communicated back and forth. That trust has to be earned. And right now it's not happening.
2: It really worries me when you say that and we think that maybe that's the way people are feeling. It's so important that they feel like they are part of the government and that they're involved we talk in the book about some election reforms. We would like to see uh, things done to make it uh, easier for people to vote. Uh, earlier voting, which is happening in states like Florida and in Washington State. Why don't we vote on Saturday instead of Tuesday? And, you know, if, you, if you're a blue-collar worker, you go to work early, you stay late, you're dirty, you get home, and you just say, what the heck, I'm not going to go vote. So uh, there are some things I think we can do to make it more appropriate and easier for people to participate and to realize that they, they need to participate. You know,
0: both of you met my older son in the green room, yeah. and he was a former AP history and government teacher, and that's why he's here, in fact, with my five-day-old grandchild, because they re- he refused not to be able to say hello to these two wonderful gentlemen sitting with me today. And at the same time, one of the things you bring out in this book is we're finding now that we're actually stifling, taking away a lot of the civics courses that we used to learn about. In fact, when you look at the curriculum, Western civilization, civics in general, are oftentimes not even part of the curriculum. How can you grow future leaders, future people who feel connected to the system
2: if they're not even learning what the system uh, is about. That is such a huge mistake. We need to make sure that we uh, do everything we can to make young people understand and appreciate the government, their role. And Tom and I both were greatly influenced in our lives by teachers. My mother was a teacher, but also I had a civics teacher in high school that it really affected my whole life. Tom's got an example of that, too. Well,
1: I had a first-grade teacher who taught me... First and foremost, that public service was the highest calling in our democracy. That we should aspire, that one day, uh, that we could actually be in public service. She, she instilled this sense of, of excitement and a sense of, of of accomplishment, a sense of success by being in public service, and I, I think you're absolutely right, Barry. We aren't teaching that anymore. We ought to be thankful for every teacher who still carries that message into his or her classroom.
0: Let's let's explore this a little further because, I, as I say, I think this is at the root to solving the problem. We're also, as as you say, and and I think this goes back to a little bit the media. I don't think we're totally not to blame for this. There is still this underlying great American spirit. Talk about it in in civics. We're led to believe almost now that it's gone, that we don't have this opportunity still. And in some cases, the people are seeing they don't seem to have this opportunity still. So that's an important thing to re spark that energy of patriotism, not and, and as you described, patriotism not being just this blind love for a country, but this love for this ideology that America can do this, that you can do this within this country.
1: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I, we, Americans are capable of rising to the occasion, but they have to be inspired. They have to be motivated. They have to be brought to that point I, you know, we've gone through some difficult times in the last century. We went through two world wars, the Great Depression, uh, you know, the, the impeachment of, of of two presidents, and yet we look back and call that the American century. Uh, why? Because we accomplished so much in science and in and in just about every walk of life. That is because of who we are. We just, we treasure this innovation and this spirit of, this can-do spirit that's so much a part of our soul and our our being. And we we can do that again, but we have to be inspired and we have to show the leadership to make
2: it happen. You know, the American uh, system is really unique in the world, you know, we're about the only country, one of a few countries at least. We take an oath of allegiance to defend and support the Constitution, not to, you know, defend the people. It is about a set of principles. And I do believe that great American spirit is still there. And our form of government allows that to rise up when it's needed. Unfortunately, quite often it takes a, a, a crisis or a, really a serious challenge to make us wake up and and come together and, and do things as a country like we did after nine eleven, And maybe that's where we are now. Maybe we're at a po- cross point. And this weird election we're seeing this year, maybe, maybe the we better look at what's, what's being said, uh, what's happening in the elections this year, uh, the candidates that are leading the pack. There is frustration. There is anger. But what is the solution? And that is to give an optimistic view of the American dream. I, we lived the American dream. My dad was a pipe fitter union member in a shipyard, my mother an elementary and, a, and an English school teacher, to be able to get a public school education. I didn't go to private schools. I went to public schools all my life and be able to go to Washington. But the point is, not about me. The point is, the American dream is still there, and a lot of people are living it, but we've got to make sure it is preserved and protected.
0: Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. Let's go. You know, it's let's go now, because that's uh, that's what I wanted to hear, because I do believe the exact sure. same thing. And, and and it's just that, again, we go back to needing that courage and we we have it. We have it. We have to make sure that we don't detach ourselves from the government. One of the ways mm-hmm. your gentlemen have suggested you hinted at it earlier is this long amount of campaigning that's going on, especially as we're in right now. One of the suggestions was a national primary day. I think we hinted at shortening the time, but a national primary day is interesting because then we can again focus instead of, and also this is interesting as we're going through this now. You may start voting by who's winning rather than by who's, so, you know, who you really believe should be in there. So if we have it on one day, that would help. You also talked about electronic voting. There's many ways we could even improve the process of that institution.
1: Well, we've got to deal with the fact that more and more people are choosing not to vote. And when they do that, they cede the authority, the opportunity to choose the direction of our country uh, to the others who do. And the others who do oftentimes are the extreme uh, elements on the far right and the far left. A national primary or maybe even a regional set of primaries would at the very least uh, allow us to put focus. They would shorten the time, put focus on greater and greater participation. And as you say, create a real level playing field for everybody to compete and for voters to make up their minds.
0: You talked about soft money and you said these words, soft money. Federal law closed up the wrong end, the receiving end. The giving side is freer than it has ever been. And this is again where I think the people are feeling out of the loop because, what did you say? I think it was fewer than 200 donors. Well, read it. A recent study found that 60% of the money spent by super PACs on both sides came from fewer than 200 donors. Now that may not be a monarchy, but that's very close to an oligarchy. I mean, we've gotta be very careful about that.
2: We're very uncomfortable with that. These super PACs really bother me. Right now, in the Republican uh, campaigns, you've got super PACs criticizing people really that uh, we thought were friends. They're going after each other and it's almost always negative. And you don't know for sure uh, who who it came from or where it's going. And by the way, sometimes even the candidates that are supposed to be benefiting from the super PAC are hurt by what they do. Uh, So we do believe that at least you should disclose, you should have transparency and instant reporting about who's contributing and what it's going for.
1: Uh, The exact number in that study is 154. 154 families provided the majority of funding in the super PAC uh, world today. On both sides. On both sides. And that says everything you need to know about the corrosive effect of politics today.
0: Another part that I find corrosive, I'm going to level with you, gentlemen, and I know you do too, the size of the bills. I'm going to have a guest (laughs) on later who, not today, but in, in the future, who actually compiled the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, and the entire Constitution. And it's about this thick. Between the IRS and the Affordable Care Act, you can build a tower that probably can reach to the moon. Now, both of you even joke and I, both of you did this. So when, that, when, when it was said that, you know, you first passed the law before you, then you'll get a chance to understand it. Why can't we simply make a bill focused on one issue clearly in a page or two. What is up with that?
1: Well, there's so many. One of my favorite uh, illustrations of that is Trent and I were both around when we passed the last Tax Simplification Act in 1986. (laughs) Do you know, Barry, that we've amended the Tax Simplification Act over 8,000 times since that (laughs) law was passed?
0: You amended The Tax Simplification Act (laughs) over
1: eight thousand times (laughs) since
2: 1986. Well, it's just got ridiculous (laughs) the size of them, but it's reflective of the size of the government. The government now. This is where I begin to sound like a conservative Republican. The government is so big, so out of control, so into everything in our lives, so many regulations, so many taxes, so many tax credits on the other side of that ledger. But these bills are so big because, first of all, you got uh, very ingenious staff. Uh, that uh, are able to build on them and expand them, and you don't always know exactly what they're doing because this section refers to another section and another bill. It gets to be a way to hide things, and I I know that happened too. So, um, you know, it's easier said than done, but a little more simplification across the board would probably serve us well.
1: But Neil, something we both feel very, very strongly about, and we haven't talked about it enough yet, is this need to go back to regular order. You know one of the reasons why these bills are so big is because they pass so few, they put them all together. They call them omnibus bills. And that, that, that word is almost meaningless, but it's omnibus means an everything bill because they look for vehicles where they can put it all together so that when they can actually pass something, they've got it all done. Uh, it may be an appropriations bill, but it may be about five or ten authorization bills, and it may be and tax bills and tax bills and everything all in one package. And I guarantee you, there isn't a legislator in Washington that has read that oh, that bill when agree. they vote on it. Yeah. So they're voting blindly. They don't know what the fine print looks like, and they don't know what's really inside. They're told this is what it does. They vote. I think it's just an absolute horrific. Uh, a way to legislate and to, to, to run this country, but that's what's going on today.
2: The good news is they did get a bill done that kept the government operating right at the end of the year this past year, but it was all 12 appropriations bills that fund the government See, agencies. Th- uh, Lots that's, of that, tax that's got policies. to stop. Gentlemen, Lots, that absolutely. has got to
0: stop. Yeah. If that doesn't stop, yeah. we're, how can we re- regain? We want to regain the American people back involved in their government You make those bills simple, not simple because we can't understand them, simple because you can't even read them. So simple, and then vote on one bill, we don't like the way you vote, we then could vote you out. Now we can't, we're we're losing, we're, what's the scariest part is because this is such a good democratic republic, we're giving up our
2: power. Yeah, exactly. That's why we talk about. That's what we mean by regular order. Going back to bringing up individual bills, having them debated, voted on. Uh, Mitch McConnell and Harry Reid, the leaders in the Senate, both said they want to try to do that this year. It's going to be hard to do because the year is a political year and it's so compacted. Same thing in the House. At least the Speaker has been saying that the, the members have to have. I think it's two days or a, a period of time to take a look at these bills, but. Uh, that won't work. They're just too massive. The better way to do it is do individual bills. Well, gentlemen, I'm
0: going to end on this note because, as I said, these are the solutions. American ingenuity, we still do have it, and it is within our power as individual citizens. This is what you write. And as a collective citizenry to change our course. Thank you, Senator Lott. Thank you, Senator Daschle, for helping us see the crisis point, so that we can make these changes. You, it was a pleasure having you great both. Great to be on this with show. you, Barry. Thank you. you. It. My pleasure. And thank you, guys, for joining us. Now, before Senators Lott and Daschle leave, I'd like to leave you with these few more words from Crisis Point, so that we can regain the power. It is not only within our power to change things; it is our duty. We must work at it and fight for it. There is too much at stake. We have the tools, we have the resilience, and we have the motivation. It is in our hands. I'm Barry Kibrick. Between our hands, we have the tools, we have the resilience, and the motivation to overcome our broken politics. It is our power And it is our responsibility. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. It was a true honor. Thank you very much, Barry. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe or become a patron of the show at barrykibrick.com to keep it going every week. Thank you.